listening to Law, Life and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Well, thank you very much, Harry Droz and Paul Bass. The NFT non-fungible token bubble burst, FTX crypto exchange and Sam Bankman-Fried's business empire collapsed, and the SEC is pursuing an enforcement action against Coinbase, the largest U.S. cryptocurrency exchange. The once hot, glowing crypto halo has certainly cooled as regulators are stepping up actions. But one person who had never jumped on the crypto bandwagon, Nicholas Weaver, is here to discuss some of cryptocurrency's problems. And with the blockchain technology, he'll share where he sees its future. Dr. Weaver has a bachelor's degree in astrophysics and computer science, as well as a PhD in computer science, all from the University of California, Berkeley, where he's a lecturer. He's also the CEO of Scary Technologies and a researcher at the International Computer Science Institute, ICSI, at Berkeley, where he focuses on security, including criminal activity. He has followed the cryptocurrency space for over a decade. Dr. Weaver has no cryptocurrency, and the only Bitcoin he ever possessed, he gave away in 2015. Well, Nicholas, welcome to Law, Life, and Culture. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and I would like to say, actually, I never gave up on the cryptocurrency space because there's one thing that I find it has in abundance, comedy gold, that the space is so fascinating to watch and frankly hilarious to watch that I've been able to contribute to my career by mining the comedy gold out of it and turning it into academic papers. Okay. Now, Dr. Weaver is the author of this December 2022 white paper published by the Information Society Project, an intellectual center at Yale Law School. It's titled, The Death of Cryptocurrency, The Case for Regulation. This is an interesting paper and I highly recommend it. You can find it online if you Google Nicholas Weaver and cryptocurrency. So what motivated you to write this paper? What motivated me is partially a business model of such papers further my career. I will admit my business interests right from the start, unlike most cryptocurrency advocates, but also that there's basically nothing truly new in the space, that we've had digital payments for generations now. Um, our money is digital. That what the cryptocurrency space has done over the past decade is basically replicate failures of financial systems that date back half a millennia while disguising it in technobabble. And so what is necessary is to cut through the technobabble to explain what's really going on. And once you explain what's really going on, not only do you see the uh, emperor's fine clothes, uh, but you also see that pretty much all the bad behavior in the space ends up recapitulating stuff that we already have the regulatory tools to deal with. 
Now, up top in your paper, you say cryptocurrencies will not and cannot form the basis of a revolution in our global financial system. Despite the repeated failures of major cryptocurrency projects, the space is seemingly inescapable. Immense investments into cryptocurrency projects drive a hype cycle that keeps promising a set of revolutions that is not materializing. The truth about cryptocurrencies is they fail to accomplish nearly every objective they purportedly were created to achieve. Can you explain what you mean? So let's first look at them as a payment source. So if you want to do a payment uh, for a legal service these days, you just give your credit card number, it transfers over, and it costs the receiver 2.5%. It's annoying 2.5%, but it's not bad. If you want to pay with cryptocurrency, the problem is, is the cryptocurrency price is bouncing up and down all the time, which means the receiver has to take the cryptocurrency and turn it into actual money that almost everybody as a business who's claimed to accept cryptocurrency is effectively fibbing. They're going with a service that allows them to price in dollars present that dollar value at the current value of Bitcoin. And then when the cryptocurrency is transferred, it gets turned into dollars that's deposited into their bank account and they're spending two to 3% for the service. But this also means that the system needs to balance that I, as somebody who wants to buy something with Bitcoin has to first get the Bitcoin. And actually buying cryptocurrency is expensive. Because cryptocurrency starts with the premise that transactions are irreversible. There's no undo button when things go wrong or theft or anything else. The rest of our electronic money depends on central intermediaries who have an undo button and have legal requirements to undo theft, fraud, etc. Which means buying cryptocurrency requires that you transfer your money to somebody else they have to hold on to it for a couple of days before giving you the cryptocurrency, or they have to have a, a relationship where they're extending you credit and trusting that you aren't going to undo that, or they're actually going to have to accept physical cash, which is the only other non-reversible payment system. And the reason why it's we tolerate it being non-reversible is it requires physical presence. And so this means that actually buying cryptocurrency is expensive. So a real-world cryptocurrency transaction will incur two currency conversion fees. And as a consequence, it will cost more than the digital payments we've had for over a generation. So why would you want to do this? Well, the central intermediaries don't like crime. The central intermediaries like PayPal don't like the idea of you using crypto or you using money to buy drugs or pay off million dollar ransoms or everything else. And so it's only superior for payments when the activity is criminal. And that's because the criminals are not tolerated on PayPal for drug dealing and ransomware dealing with a $5 million ransom 
Well, the bad guys can't accept bank transfers because it's not allowed. They can't accept cash because $5 million is 50 kilograms of paper that they have to arrange to pick up. Oh, and when you pick it up, you have to worry about a 308 caliber gift from a Marine on the next hill because this is to pay off your disrupting the East Coast gas system or cryptocurrency. And so the bad guys hate cryptocurrency, but it's the only game in town. Well, advocates of cryptocurrency, such as Bitcoin or, or Ethereum, tout its benefits include democratizing the power of money creation and control, removing that from the government and big banks to allow secure transactions from payer to payee. And it's said that this will allow access to the financial system of unbanked people, those who don't have checking or savings accounts. And last year, the FDIC reported 5.9 million or 4.5% roughly of U.S. households were unbanked in 2021. Do you see this as any possible benefit? No, because the problem is, is we've known how to build systems that would bank the rest. We just don't want to. The, the U.S. Postal Service, for example, could be like the post office in many other countries and offer basic banking service. Um, this would be a revenue source for them and a benefit to the otherwise unbanked. Another common thing you say is, but what about the third world? The third world is unbanked. And if you reply with M-Pesa, they look like you're speaking Swahili because you are. This is the payment system where Kenya, basically everything goes through M-Pesa, which is a payment system that's digital that works on very simple dumb phones in a country where a huge fraction of the people don't even have electricity. So we know how to build systems for banking the unbanked. In reality, what cryptocurrency tends to do is unbank the banked, as so much of the cryptocurrency space is rife with crime, fraud, et cetera, that uh, cryptocurrency advocates find their bank accounts removed because, well, they're selling a huge amount of Bitcoin in face-to-face -face transactions. And well, let's face it, that Bitcoin was all from drug dealing. Now, you've already articulated the benefits of government regulation um, in with our economy, or, or not necessarily with our economy, but at least with these transactions. So spreading that out a little bit more, uh, my thoughts have been that at least elected officials are supposed to have the public interest in mind, and it's not the free market, private profits, as the checks and balances for a functioning economy, as well as what you spoke about in um, addressing criminal behavior. Should that be the public's strongest motivation to simply oppose widespread adoption of cryptocurrency? Or if not, what should be? I think the biggest reason to oppose widespread adoption is it's not going to happen. That due to its nature, it cannot be a currency, that the way to make cryptocurrency payments work is you have a intermediary who takes in dollars, issues digital dollars, those digital dollars circulate and can be redeemed. And this is called a bank. 
These are called digital banknotes. And we stopped uh, allowing banks to do the to create their own banknotes back in the 19th century because we had the problem of wildcat banks. So actually making a cryptocurrency system that would work for payments requires trusted intermediaries and said trusted intermediaries have proven to be untrustworthy. So why not use the existing payment systems that require trusted intermediaries, but we regulate the trusted intermediaries so that we can actually trust them. If you had to wear another hat, what would you see as the greatest benefit of cryptocurrency and could regulations control attendant risks to reach, reap any such benefits? So let's actually look at what the real use case is of cryptocurrency within the venture capitalist community. The venture capital community has done, used to be, you invest in 10 companies. Eight fail, oh well. Two succeed. Of those that succeed, of those that succeed, after a few years, um, you either go public in an IPO where you have to do a lot of paperwork, you make it open to the public and everybody buys your stock and congratulations, you walk away with a fortune, or it gets bought up by a bigger company that is going to actually make sure that what you're selling is actually worth something. These days, though, how the major venture capital companies make a huge amount of money in cryptocurrency is they invest in a company that does, say, privacy-preserving machine learning on the blockchain. Yes, that word salad is the actual pitch of at least one company I know of. The privacy-preserving machine learning company issues a token. This token is either purportedly to be for a service that you use or voting on a community or whatever, but in the end is basically supposed to be a claim on that company being successful. And the venture capital company gets a huge amount of them. It gets listed on Coinbase or decentralized exchanges. The venture capital company sells out to the public. Now, this is all fine and good, except for it's called securities fraud, that the token that's being issued is plainly a security under U.S. law. It is an investment of money in a common enterprise where the enterprise making money depends on the effort of others, the company building the successful privacy-preserving machine learning on the blockchain and getting enough people who want to use it that they need to buy the token and so on and so forth. It is so obvious securities fraud. But for the longest time, the SEC never bothered enforcing it because they were afraid of stifling regulation. And let's assume that the SEC finally starts enforcing as they are finally starting to do. Well, what happens is the venture company goes, well, it wasn't us. It was privacy-preserving machine learning on the blockchain that committed the securities fraud. So they walk away with a small fortune well, somebody else did the criming. Okay. That is the innovation in the blockchain space. Okay. So in all honesty, with not having the government to bail out 
failed crypto schemes. Would it be fair to say, look, if there are some people who want to play in this form of uninsured investments, you go right ahead. It will cost to expand the SEC, hire more government employees to monitor and regulate a huge industry. Maybe some people don't want public dollars safeguarding crypto investors. Is this where we're at with the status quo? And is there too much public risk in letting things continue as they are? I think there's too much public risk in letting things continue just because it's recapitulating the old problems, that the crypto tokens that people are buying are almost identical to stocks during the South Sea bubble. There's a reason why we have regulations about disclosure, that what it would take to do a legal initial coin offering is basically disclosure and paperwork. Most of the disclosure and paperwork is not actually all that much. There's, in fact, ways designed specifically for crowdfunding uh, startups below a certain level that are designed to be very low paperwork and very efficient, but still require some level of disclosure. That regulating the space property properly just simply requires that they actually follow the law, that the cryptocurrency community complains about lack of regulatory clarity. They they put that in air quotes all the time. The reality is there's so much regulatory clarity, what they've been taking advantage of is regulatory blind spots, that the regulation the regulators haven't bothered enforcing things, and also what's known as regulatory arbitrage, where basically for purposes of A, you say you're regulated by one group, purposes of B, you say you're regulated by the other, and it's basically the equivalent of mom saying you can't stay up late and play video games, and you try to ask dad instead. So going back a little, how did you connect with Yale Law School in Pitt? publishing this paper that I referenced. I've had a long history of being a academic critic of cryptocurrency. That the, the first work I did on it back in 2013 convinced me that it would never be the future of finance. That the basic nature of it was flawed due to the, the structures that I mentioned. And in doing that, I was fortunate. I've don't have a formal economics background, but I've got an informal one. And I've got just past the Dunning-Kruger threshold knowledge of economics. So I know what I don't know and don't get too far out over my skis on that. So I've been, every time cryptocurrency bubbles up, like 2017, 2021, I have to do a fair amount of time going around and going, this is bogus. This is why it's bogus. This is why it can't be the future of finance. This is why these things are recapitulating old frauds. And in fact, the 2021 bubble didn't even come up with new frauds, that the NFTs were tried in 2017 with CryptoKitties. So new frauds, they can't even come up with new frauds anymore. They're coming up with old frauds that they already tried. 
But since I've followed the community so long, I have this reputation of being somebody who has notes. So like Ponzi schemes are incredibly common in the cryptocurrency space. So back a year ago, the Celsius network failed spectacularly, and they were effectively a Ponzi scheme. But they're not the first Ponzi scheme in cryptocurrency. The first Ponzi scheme back in 2013 was a guy called Pirate at 40, which got 10% of all Bitcoin in existence at the time invested in a Ponzi scheme run by an unknown person calling himself Pirate at 40. So it's not only that they're recapitulating old frauds, they're not even doing as good a job of it as they used to. You know, it's interesting because last August with a $5.75 million grant from the Algorand Foundation, Yale University started PAVE or its Center for Privacy, Accountability, Verification, and Economics of Blockchain Systems. And researchers were developing new courses in blockchain and cryptocurrency. Back in 2018, Yale, having the second largest university endowment, made news investing in two cryptocurrency funds. And in 2021, Coindesk reported Harvard, Yale, and Brown University endowments had been buying Bitcoin for at least a year. How would such investments impact their endowments? Uh, first of all, it's going to be in the noise. Their endowments are so large that buying a little cryptocurrency is not going to matter. Investing in cryptocurrency funds, that's going to the VCs. So they're basically investing in people doing the Uberization of securities fraud. And so they're going to make their money. Cool. Good for you. As for the teaching and centers, if I wanted to do a center of applied astrology at Berkeley and threw 10 million bucks at them, I could get the Center of Applied Astrology. Um, and so there's a lot of reputation washing on that. But the other is the faculty actually at universities have a huge amount of freedom. Um, this is deliberately so. Most faculty, when they look at the cryptocurrency space, go, this is garbage. I have no economic model to follow it further and just ignore it. That's what happens to most computer scientists who look at this space. I and a few others have the model of this space is garbage, but the comedy gold I can turn into papers, therefore I have a model that allows me to follow it. The final is the faculty who become believers. And these basically go into two forms. Form one are those who actually believe in financial privacy. And if you truly believe that there should be financial privacy and you should be able to do $10 million transactions with nobody noticing, yes, cryptocurrency is the only game in town. Unfortunately, ransomware and Bitcoin made me believe in the jackbooted enforcement of money laundering laws. So that's a fundamental difference. But if you believe in that world, cryptocurrency is a noble endeavor. The other one is the faculty members who are economically interested because they are the ones who 
who are doing the startup that is privacy preserving machine learning on the blockchain. And so by teaching cryptocurrency classes, they end up hyping their investment and getting out of having to actually teach. But these kind of announcements seem to serve as public endorsements of such investments. And that's logic I've often heard of, oh, these are very smart, established institutions with brilliant investors and academics supporting it. They must know something. How would you respond to the positive cryptocurrency hype that results from it? Um, that's money well spent. There's also a huge amount of money spent on pe convincing people that sugar water that causes diabetes is somehow good to drink. It's amazing how well money and marketing can get people to do bad things. Is there an amount of effort and security for cryptocurrency that's higher than just say the security to prevent hacking or cyber crimes that's in place with electronic banking we've been using for two generations now? Yes. And this comes back to the irreversibility problem. We have a quip that the best way to know if your computer gets compromised by a bad guy is keep a small unsecured Bitcoin wallet. And when your Bitcoin is stolen, you know you got compromised. This is actually not a theoretical technique. We used this in practice in 2014 to detect that we had gotten compromised. Um, what ends up happening is if your bank account, online banking stuff gets compromised, well, you have two levels of protection. You have the reversibility protection where the bank is able to undo things before damage happens. And you have legal protections. So I've had my credit card number stolen three times in my life. The amount it's cost me is zero, except for the hassle of changing some auto pays. If your cryptocurrency is stolen, well, sorry for the loss. There's nothing you can do about it because there's both no legal recourse because the money's gone to some hacker who knows where, and there's no undo button, which means you can't do mitigation. That in cryptocurrency, you have to do prevention only. You have to build a impenetrable fortress that among other things means you can never store your cryptocurrency on an internet connected computer. With your online banking, well, who cares? You're protected both legally and technologically because of reversibility. And so this is why cryptocurrency hacks are so common. A cryptocurrency theft of 5 million bucks hardly rates Web3 is going great. You basically have to get into the 150 to $600 million theft range before it even reaches the news at the cryptocurrency community level because it's so common that you click on one wrong thing on MetaMask in the cryptocurrency space and all your apes are gone, all your NFTs are taken away from you, transferred to a sales thing, sold and the cryptocurrency sold off basically in a matter of moments. And there's nothing you can do about it because the systems don't allow you to go 
oh, this was stolen goods, unwind it, even though this is a transaction that happened five minutes ago. There's no undo button in the system. And that means you have to be so much more secure than everything else. And the lessons when you browse Web3 is going great is that experts cannot do this. Experts cannot secure cryptocurrency. How should we expect normal users? You're listening to Nicholas Weaver on WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. So Nicholas, can you describe what is the benefit of decentralized finance? And then you wrote decentralized cryptocurrencies aren't even decentralized. Can you explain that aspect of cryptocurrency? So we have the theory of decentralization. So the idea with decentralization is that anybody who you don't know can participate in the network and the system ends up producing trustworthy results despite some fraction of the participants being untrustworthy. This has two problems. First of all, yes, you're eliminating a trusted intermediary. But the question is, why did you trust that intermediary? In our financial system, it's because we have the guys with guns working for us, aka the FBI, um, cooperating with everybody else to make sure that the trusted intermediaries are honest. And so to start with, the benefit of decentralization only starts to arise when you have something where a trusted intermediary cannot be trusted, in which case, well, congratulations, welcome to Mad Max land. That's not my preferred way of living. Or the trusted intermediary refuses to do it because it's unfavored activity or criminal activity. And so, for example, all this decentralized finance stuff is about creating exchanges for unregistered securities that the SEC can't just easily shut down, aka a casino for securities fraud. That's not going to be a revolution. But then it turns out these systems are best described as derp centralized rather than decentralized. That is, when you actually scratch under the hood, you see all these central players that just basically don't want to do what they are supposed to do as a central authority until somebody big and nasty says, uh, you better do it or we're going to throw you in jail. So most cryptocurrency validation on Ethereum or mining by bit on Bitcoin are done by a few players, that there's only a few players that actually control the system. And so, for example, over 50% of Ethereum over 50% of the Ethereum validation actually respects U.S. sanctions because they know if they don't, they're going to jail. That to actually use Ethereum, you depend on a web browser extension called MetaMask. MetaMask is a single program written by a single set of 
players. So you have to trust them because if they screw up or there's a bug, well, all your apes are gone. That is generally powered by a centralized company called Infura, which when the OFAC says these are sanctioned, says, okay, we will not support any of these. And so the net result is, even when you think they're decentralized, these systems are not. And so even the benefit of decentralization, that is, no central intermediary saving thou shalt not buy drugs, goes away when a suitable amount of pressure is applied. So, well, you can still buy drugs with your Bitcoin and Ethereum, but if it's a known North Korean wallet, that's dirty money that even the cryptocurrency space won't trust and won't touch, despite the purported decentralization. Why does there need to be anonymity in crypto? Could there perhaps be a community where people register within that community and provide uh, their identity to take on some of these criminal issues and problems by agreeing to exclude, um, disclose their identity? Would that be a benefit or any kind of quasi-solution? Uh it would work, except that then people would go, why bother? That um, that if you have, say, a stable coin, so that is you have the entity that takes dollars to crypto dollars and vice versa, and the crypto dollars can only circulate amongst named entities who the issuer trusts, which we could do. This is very straightforward code to do, and you could easily modify the existing stable coins to support this. Well, congratulations. You now have no cost savings over Visa because Visa already has to do the know your customer stuff and everything else to prevent the criming and stop the dirty money and all that. And once you actually remove the ability to evade regulation, the cryptocurrency space loses its value proposition. The White House noted digital assets reached a market capitalization of $3 trillion globally in 2021. President Biden issued an executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. And 2022 headlines were touting how Wall Street was embracing crypto, hiring top financial talent. So regardless of the warnings and the weaknesses of crypto, is it here to stay? I don't think so, because first of all, if you actually read the latest from the White House, it is basically saying in slightly more polite language that the cryptocurrency space has been speed running half a millennia of financial failures while huffing crystal meth. And therefore, we should actually apply all the existing regulations designed against those half a millennia of financial failures, in which case the space disappears. That cryptocurrency that gets properly regulated loses whatever little value proposition it has, and it goes up in smoke. And this is actually formal White House policy now. The cryptocurrency on Wall Street, well, 
hey, they're probably want to get part of the Anderson Horowitz security fraud business. And the other thing is, is Wall Street loves gambling, that Wall Street loves products where they basically create a heads I win, tails you lose bet. So if I was running a hedge fund, I would run a very excellent hedge fund. It would be called Capital Decimation Partners. Every year, nine times out of 10, it's going to show great profits. And I get my two and 20. That is, I get 2% of the assets under management and 20% of the profit. And everybody's going to be loving. And there is a 10% chance that it blows up completely when the Fed raises rates in an unexpected way. And I go, oh, Black Swan, who could have known? That's the Wall Street business model for the most part. So them getting involved in cryptocurrency should not be thought of a validation of cryptocurrency, but more a invalidation of what their business is. Do you see crypto sticking around as another type of investment vehicle, um, like investing in futures, short selling stock, or buying EFTs that replicate the price of gold? No. And that's because let's actually distinguish between investing and speculation. In an investment, I'm a savvy investor. And as a savvy investor, that means I put my money in index funds and ignore it for a few decades. Now, this has the property of when I end up selling my investments, my profit is not just the difference between what I bought and what somebody else will buy, but also all the interest payments and dividends and buybacks, and all the other money that comes from productive economic activity. This makes a positive sum game. This means some people win, some people lose, but on average, more is won than lost. This is investing. A zero-sum game is where the value of what I sell is only dependent on what somebody else will buy from. This is speculation or gambling. So gold is not an investment. Gold is a speculation because you are basing it entirely on what someone else will pay for the pretty shiny metal. Um, cryptocurrency starts with zero sum. There are no dividends or interest payments or anything else to make it positive sum. So it starts with zero sum. And then there's so much inefficiencies in the system that the Bitcoin system requires roughly as much power as a major country to run to process six transactions a second, um, which means that the resulting system is deeply negative sum. Then you add on all the frauds and scams like Sam Bankman-Fried and the Ponzi schemes and everything else, and it becomes even more deeply negative. And so I do not see cryptocurrency being a viable investment. It is, however, potentially fun gambling. But if you want to gamble, I say go to Vegas. They have better restaurants. Do you see the blockchain technology better used in purposes outside a currency substitute 
Would there be another area where the blockchain technology could have a more promising future? Well, let's define what a blockchain is. A blockchain is what's known as an append-only data structure, a way that you can only add records, you can never delete it. So this is all a blockchain accomplishes. Let us have a Google form and a Google sheet. You fill out the form, you click the button. When you click the button, it checks to make sure that your input is valid, et cetera. And then it adds one more line to the Google sheet. And the Google sheet is set so you can never delete anything. That's all a blockchain gets you. How can something so simple be a revolution? It can't because this is stuff we've known how to build in computing for a literal generation that Blockchain is basically techno babble over a hash chain. And hash chains date back to the 1970s as a concept. So, this is not a revolutionary idea. That instead, it's something that has powered computer systems for a generation. And so, anyone who says blockchain can solve X basically doesn't understand X. And so this is my iron law of blockchain. Blockchain solves exactly one problem. Anyone who says you can solve X with blockchain has no idea how to solve X and you can safely ignore them. And this I created several years ago when I was sitting in on one of these classes on blockchain that a faculty member was doing to avoid teaching. Um, it was all guest lectures. And one of the persons with a straight face, this was 2017, 2018, go, okay, in India, we have to worry about supply chain on vaccines. If the vaccine gets too hot, it's bad. We can solve this with blockchain. And my reaction was, no, you bleep. You solve this with $3 shock watch temperature labels. You slap a label on the thing, you pull out a little tab, and if the vaccine ever gets too hot, the label changes color. And anyone with even the most passing familiarity with cold chain, like you ordered shrimp online, knows this. And so this was clearly somebody coming up with an application for blockchain that had no idea how to actually solve their application. Okay, so for someone just minding my own business and finances as a consumer, and more importantly, as a citizen, supporting the financial health and good of my country, is there a role that people like me should play regarding cryptocurrency in our society? Or do you think it's just going to disappear? I hope that it will disappear. But the biggest thing is stay out that cryptocurrency is a way to lose your money. Anyone who advocates that you invest in cryptocurrency has cryptocurrency of their own. And the only way that cryptocurrency will be worth more is if they can find new suckers. And right now, the cryptocurrency space has a problem. A sucker born every minute. We're all familiar with that saying. 
That's a finite supply of suckers. And that's just about how many people put their money in cryptocurrency in 2021. And I believe you addressed this earlier in our conversation um, and in your paper as well, that you're not buying the argument that, oh, the law just can't keep up with the pace of technology from this discussion and your paper. I gather you feel the SEC regulations are already in place that should be enforced. Does the SEC have the bandwidth to take on the cryptocurrency community where needed? That actually is a very interesting question. Does the SEC have the bandwidth? I think they could if they start automating things. That if you look at the cryptocurrency lawsuits over the unregistered securities, you could literally cut and paste and put a different statement of facts. And it really would only take about a day's time per stat of of a staff member to start another lawsuit. And so basically, I think the SEC needs to automate things more. A lot more cut and paste of this is the specific facts and narrative. So you have to write two pages out of your 20 page uh, lawsuit and just start filing them and filing them and filing them. Now, in your paper, you also described El Salvador's experiment in adopting Bitcoin as its national currency as a spectacular failure, and multiple news accounts, such as Bloomberg, reported it was failing badly, and not even mention the country's authoritarian president, um, Nayib Bukali, even the National Review called a tyrant in the making. But that aside, uh, the and the Bitcoin experiment nearly bankrupted his country. Later in January 2023, the AP reported that El Salvador repaid one of two outstanding $800 million bonds. And granted, the country still has significant debt, but that's due in the future. And the country seems to have avoided defaulting on its debt this year. And El Salvador is still pushing forward with its Bitcoin adoption. Is there any way I'm not understanding something and that in any way uh, El Salvador could be onto something and developing borderless currency that eventually could be stable enough to increase global investments and be a leader in some way. And I think this FOMO, FOMO, fear of missing out drives a lot of US adherence to the Bitcoin bandwagon. Like if we don't get ahead of this, we'll be left behind. Can you address this and discuss El Salvador? So let's actually roll back before Bukele decided that Bitcoin should be a currency in El Salvador. El Salvador, prior to that, and even still now, has the dollar as the US dollar as the official currency. So they already use a borderless global payment system because that's what dollars are. That's a huge value of the dollar and the euro is it's a global payment system. It's basically accepted everywhere that you actually want to do business. Hell, it's such a accepted form of currency that North Korea prints a huge amount because why not? Um, so 
the um, reason to add Bitcoin was not as much to add Bitcoin, but to add a payment rail where he could inflate balances that give a local control. So he wanted the ability to print money. And he probably saw Bitcoin as a way to do this. So how Bitcoin worked in El Salvador and works in El Salvador is everybody was given a bonus in Bitcoin to sign up for the Shivo wallet. So the Shivo wallet is a central entity, just a central trusted payment entity that keeps track of everybody's balance in Bitcoin. And to do a payment in Bitcoin in El Salvador, it's almost always Shivo wallet to Shivo wallet AKA updating a central trusted database. So not only did people get their initial Bitcoin or steal it from other people by false registration and then spend it and never touch it again, they weren't even using Bitcoin. They were using a conventional centralized payment rail. That is the beauty of the El Salvador Bitcoin experiment is it showed that Bitcoin does not actually work for payments. And even when you require that Bitcoin is accepted as legal payments, the resulting system you build has a central trusted intermediary that is adjusting balances in a central database that you have to trust. So all this decentralization stuff proves to be a phantom. Do you think other countries are going to try to follow what El Salvador did? No, because what ended up happening is it revealed masked off what a lunatic populist their uh, presidente is. Um, and most countries aren't actually in a position where they don't control their own currency. So um, the EU is about the only one and El Salvador and a couple other small countries have either no local currency or their local currency is so bad that dollars and euros are the preferred currency anyway. So nobody else is going to repeat this experiment even because there's been no benefits to El Salvador. It was hugely disruptive it cost them a fortune and it never actually worked, but hey, it allowed uh, the president to on Twitter have laser eyes and be applauded by Bitcoin pundits who somehow think freedom is glorious and then uh, have no problem with a dictator demanding that people take Bitcoin. And my last question is crypto gets another black eye for the amount of energy mining consumes. Can you address this issue about crypto? So the problem in a decentralized system as opposed to a distributed system is what we call the Sybil problem. That in a distributed system, we have a whole bunch of actors and they're all named and identified. So you're Betsy, I'm Nick. Um, in a decentralized system, we just 
anybody can participate without being named. So you are random sequence of digits. I am random sequence of digits and another random sequence of digits and another random sequence of digits. And I basically have a thousand personas or a million personas. And underneath the hood, these cryptocurrency systems have to have some sort of vote, some sort of vote on what is the state of reality. And there's two ways to solve this. There's the solution that Ethereum now uses called proof of stake, which is literally you buy your vote. Whoever has the most money has the biggest vote. It works, but he who has the gold makes the rules is not the most democratic of systems. Bitcoin went with a different approach. Bitcoin went with what's known as proof of work, where in order to get a vote, I have to do a lot of crud. Basically, I have to play a game where I create random numbers. And when one number starts with enough zeros, that counts as a vote that counts. And so this basically gives a probabilistic system where I am wasting resources to get votes. And why would I do this? Because if I get lucky and my vote counts, I get more Bitcoin. So the problem is this creates a very bad set of incentives that as long as there's more profit to be made, more people are going to participate. And how you participate is by generating electronic waste and burning electricity. Because these cryptocurrency mining machines are really just junk for any other purpose. So it's e-waste. And they take a huge amount of power to use. And so what ends up happening is under the hood, what ends up happening is a equation that you are spending X dollars per hour globally burning electricity and e-waste. If an attacker can fake the system for an hour to produce Y dollars, if Y is greater than X, they will still attack the system and congratulations, the attacker won. If Y is less than X, it's no longer economically feasible, and so the attacker does nothing. The problem is, is this is grossly inefficient. This means that Bitcoin basically can, neither, can either be secure or efficient. That in order to prevent an attacker from spinning up a gazillion sibyls, getting a gazillion votes, you have to be consuming a huge amount of resources 24-7, 365. Combined with the incentive of you win new, new Bitcoin, it basically means that the only way Bitcoin ceases to be an ecological abomination that's burning 1% to 2% of the world's electricity to process six transactions a second is for the price to collapse. The only way Bitcoin will transition to proof of stake is never. Bitcoin will always be proof of work because of how the voting system works and the larger ecology. And so the only way to reduce this footprint is to basically watch the Bitcoin price collapse. 
Um, we dropped the Bitcoin price from 27,000 to 2.7 thousand. This will drop the power consumption by 10 times. The only way to fix the Bitcoin power consumption is for it to become worthless. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Nicholas Weaver, CEO of Scary Technologies, researcher at the International Computer Science Institute, ICSI, and lecturer at UC Berkeley. And to our listeners, we appreciate your joining us. I'm Betsy Kim.